Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Boy, I'm looking at WTI crude oil pushing 120 bucks a barrel. It's Boy, pretty unbelievable. I'm riding frankly. my e-bike. That's, that's, a that's the way to go. Yeah. Um, the e-bike is the way to go. All right, Tom Johnston. He's a partner, Blue Horizon. Oh, I'm sorry, Tim Johnson. Thank you very much. Tim Johnson, partner, Blue Horizon. Blue Horizon BNE ETF is listed on the NASDAQ. Uh, I'm sorry, NYSE, BNE is the ticker. Blue Horizon, new energy economy. I want to talk new energy because I think about oil at $120 a barrel. I'm thinking about solar. I'm thinking about wind. I'm thinking about e-bikes. Tim, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about what you're doing, Blue Horizon, new energy economy. What is the ETF that you guys have and kind of what's the focus? Yeah, thank you for having me. So we have a, an index ETF, as you said, which is called Blue Horizon New Energy Economy 100 Index. And what we do is we cover five key segments across the new energy thematic, uh, which we then subdivide into 25 subsegments with a hundred name holding. And what we're trying to do is actually reflect this transition. You just talked about uh, WTI and what's going on and what we would consider the old energy uh, world. But we all know, as you said, you know, we're transitioning into this new energy economy. E-bikes is one part of, of that, but of course, there's a whole range of different things, you know, including solar and generation, all the way through to how we consume that energy that we see as being an important investment thematic uh, going forward for the decade to come and, uh, and beyond. So who are the holdings here? Um in this ETF and are they all public companies? Um, are they all, uh, you know, um, clean energy? What, what are we talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So they're all public companies. We have a, a rigorous process where we go by uh, these five subsegments, which cover e-mobility, energy storage, performance materials, energy distribution, and energy generation. And, and what we do is we have a team that we brought together from industry with uh, expertise in these different various backgrounds. And what we do is we evaluate companies that uh, are listed, not just in North America, but, but around the world uh, to first of all, evaluate them from a first principles perspective to understand the underlying principles of their business and to be able to rate them accordingly. But then we also look at things like liquidity and other aspects, which are important to build together effectively what is a uh, a fund that reflects this new energy transition in a in a very comprehensive way. All right, so Tim, I'm all in on new energy, alternative energy. You know, uh, I get it, but boy, it's six dollars a gallon for gas. I'm like, crank up the the drills, crank up the uh, refineries. Let's get some more <laughs> supply on the market. But you can't do it that fast. I get. Uh, so, are you yeah. sensing? You know, in this environment we're in now, Tim, with, with these higher energy prices a greater incentive for companies, 
for consumers to embrace alternatives? How are you thinking about that? Because, boy, for me, it kind of goes both ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it is a cyclical cycle, right? With, with any new technology or emerging industries, you're going to have waves where you're seeing the, uh, the growth of these segments uh, across the economies around the world. And so what we see is, you know, you know, over the last couple of years, we've seen a real push in terms of the, let's say, the old energy. We've had a lot of background issues associated with you know, conflicts, but also the, the broader uh, things that are affecting the economy around COVID, et cetera, that have put uh, pressure on pricing, which includes the old energy uh, commodities. But what we know is that the world is shifting. The world is shifting away from this old energy economy to this new energy economy. Uh, and it's happening uh, right now. It's happening under our feet. And so what we see is that whilst the old energy economy is, is important and relevant uh, today, and we're seeing high prices, as you said, in the oil sector, we do believe that this will swing back uh, and it will come back to favor these new energy uh, companies that, uh, that are really going to benefit from our entire shift in terms of how this economy works. What do you make of the recent moves in the price? I mean, we're looking at 25, 26 right now, BNE, um, but we've been up at 30 in the 30s, up at almost 34 um, at the beginning of last year. What's going on with price? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the benefits of having this broad range uh, 100 name index is if you look across our, our volatility across the, the segment against the peers, but if you also look at the maximum drawdown, you'll see that we generally outperform our peers uh, in this sector. And so what we say is that this is a great part of your long-term portfolio. Uh, this isn't uh, something that we recommend people trade in and out on, on, on a regular basis. It's more about if you believe in this transition to this new energy world, this new energy economy, then this is a great cornerstone for your, for your portfolio as you look to uh, transition through different segments and different macro uh, backdrops. Tim, just real quick, 30 seconds. I'm heading down to Texas next week. Is the U.S. Right. ahead or behind kind of the rest of the world in terms of some of these new energy initiatives? Yeah, the, the U.S. is desperately trying to catch up. And so they've made in, you know quite good strides over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, we've seen uh, an increase in regionalization of uh, supply chains, and that will continue uh, to benefit the U.S. The U.S., of course, is a major consumer of these materials and uh, consumer of the end products which, uh, which uh, rely on these materials. And so we see that the U.S. will continue to enhance its position, uh, but they still have a long way to go to, to catch up with other parts of the world. All right, Tim, thanks very much. Tim Johnson there, uh, partner at Blue Horizon. The ETF ticker is BNE, and you can check it out listed on the NYSE and uh, find all the details on your Bloomberg. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. 
So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, we're going to get some CPI data uh, Friday, and I think the question or the issue for many investors is, is this going to show us that inflation has or maybe is peaking? And that's kind of what I think some folks are looking for. Our next guest isn't so sure. Anna Wong, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Uh, Anna, thanks so much for joining us here. When we see the CPI data on Friday, what do you expect to see? Are you looking for signs of, of peak inflation? Yeah, so I'm uh, looking for signs that um, services inflation is slowing and that core goods inflation is at, um, at zero or even um, you know negative. Because in order for inflation year on year to be peaking soon, we really need to see the, the core goods inflation coming down really fast. Otherwise, our, my team's expectation is that we likely could see a new peak in July and potentially another new peak in September. Wow. that's Is that consensus? I just got a message from Evercore ISI that says, um, you know, after a spike in inflation, it goes down as fast as it went up. Yeah, I mean, right now the inflationary picture is very mixed and it's very difficult to, to read because on one hand, you have core versus headline issues. So headline is not peaking because gasoline prices are surging right now and food prices continue to surge, services inflation continue to surge. But then uh, core inflation, the good on the good side, we see See things slowing. You know, Target uh, earning yesterday tells uh, earning forecast yesterday tells you that demand for for goods is cooling rapidly. And then on the other hand, you also have the PCE uh, deflator, which is the Fed's preferred inflation indicator, and that is even cooling faster than the CPI, the core PCE. I mean, because they have smaller weights on a lot of stuff that's driving this faster CPI inflation, like shelter, uh, like gasoline, and used cars, right, which we all, all three categories, we expect to be driving CPI inflation in the next few months. So, Anna, you know, for the the headline number, which I think a lot of people obviously will focus on, I mean, it's driven by the stuff that just consumers have to deal with every day, as you mentioned, rising gasoline prices, rising prices at the supermarket, and there's really nothing that the Federal Reserve can do to really impact those areas. Is that right? Yeah, but the Fed's objective right now is to preempt inflation expectations to unanchor, because if expectations unanchor, then they're going to have to hike rates way higher in order to generate the same amount of disinflation. 
compared to when expectations is not unanchored. And unfortunately, oftentimes it is gasoline prices and food prices that drive up expectations. Furthermore, another thing that the, the Fed should be trying to preempt is the wage price spiral. And that could be generated by indexation of cost of living to CPI, where it's tied to CPI, not PCE. And and that so what they're trying to do is not to lower those immediately lower those prices, gas and food prices indeed. It's really to preempt expectations from it. Okay. By the way, Anna, the Fed is just one piece, and I know the Biden administration would like us to believe that it's totally the Fed's responsibility and only the Fed can deal with inflation, but Clearly, there are some things government can do. Gina Armando was talking about lifting some tariffs recently. What do you think Washington um, can and should do to help fight rising prices? Yeah, I think one immediate policy uh, or uh, that they could do is to make any more policy mistakes. And this is about to come across as callous, <laughs> but I think the student debt forgiveness, for example, the $10,000 student debt forgiveness is going to be inflationary if they do so, especially if it's going to be universal and only capping at a couple making 300 k I estimated that based on the amortization schedule of the student loan, that, that it could generate an extra $1,700 perpetually each year for a couple making, uh, you know, uh, 300K. Um, it's it's, um, it's it's huge amount. But it, but it won't it won't it won't be given to any couples make making more than 300K. Right. And these yeah. people yeah. who we think of as, um, you know, rich people, although uh, we've seen surveys lately showing that a, a lot of them are still living paycheck to paycheck. They have the highest student debt. Right, but also they have been uh, earning a lot more. These are, we're talking about lawyers and PhD in economics and, you know, people who could, who could pay it off. And I estimate that this, um, this, the student debt forgiveness could be contributing an additional of 0.5 percentage point to inflation in this year or next year, this year to next year. So, uh, given where inflation is at right now, we certainly don't need another you know, 50 basis points higher inflation. Well, at least you've got the uh, uh, the the um, rescinding of the SALT tax acting in the opposite direction, right? Because a lot of these people live in Connecticut, New Jersey, and California, <laughs> and uh, they're getting hit hard by state and local taxes, which they can no longer deduct. Well, uh, but uh, that, that effect had been entrenched in it still uh, hurts, uh, Anna. <laughs> I know, I know. I live in the East Coast. <laughs> so, Anna, you know, one of the things that you know I need to remind myself of as we think about inflation is this really is a global issue. It's not just a U.S. issue. And there's true. Is that typical, Anna? Do we typically see when the U.S. is in a significantly inflationary environment that we see it in the rest of the world as well? Well, the the thing that the fact that all all many countries are seeing inflationary pressure means there's a common shock uh, across the world, and that is the supply shock. But the issue is that U.S. inflation is, is uniquely high. Um, before the the war in Ukraine, U.S. inflation is running about three percentage points higher than the rest of the advanced economy uh, in the OECD 
countries, which means that in U.S. there's a specific demand component to the cost of our high inflation, which the Europe does not have, for example. All right, Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Yes. Uh, Anna Wong, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg Economics. Check out this resume, man. I was I just going to say. I mean, Ph.D. from the Economics from the University of Chicago. They're pretty That's good, like, right? They're pretty good. They have a pretty good program. And they, they like numbers there. Uh, B.A. in Economics and Statistics, Statistics from Berkeley. Also pretty good. Where'd she work before Bloomberg? Former Federal Reserve Principal Economist, former Chief International Economist on White House Council of Economic Advisors. Oh, the White House. Yeah, that's not bad. Former Deputy Director in the Office of International Economic Analyst at the U.S. Treasury. Yes. And former International Economist. With I the also Federal have Reserve to say, Anna, I love reading <laughs> your research. So thank you very much for joining us. And I hope uh, next time you come into New York City that yes. you'll join us. In the studio here at 731 Lexington Avenue, because we are so happy that you are working for us. Yes. Anna Wong, Chief U.S. Economist for Bloomberg LP. Hey, here's a story going across the Bloomberg map. I thought it was pretty cool. Mike Novogratz, the founder and chief executive of Galaxy Digital Holdings, says that two-thirds of the hedge funds that invest in cryptocurrencies will fail as a consequence of the current market downtime, uh, downturn. Not very bullish on the crypto. And our next guest... And you, and he says, and we can get into this with yeah. our guest, but it's because the central bank has taken the punch bowl away. Right? They have, I know, yeah. and that's kind of going to be an issue. And our next guest, I think, might have some thoughts on that. Uh, Timor Hyatt, COO of PGIN, that's the investment arm of Prudential uh, Insurance Company. I'll tell you, Prudential is a lifelong resident of New Jersey. They are the pride of Newark, New Jersey, and we love the folks at Prudential there and what they do in Jersey. Uh, Timor, thanks so much for joining it. At PGM, what do you guys think about crypto? What are you doing there? So, you know, I think I agree with Nagravats, but I think but I think there is probably some money to be made by quant hedge funds in alpha generation because there is so much speculative fear of missing out, retail money flowing into cryptocurrencies that if you're on the other side of that, you can generate alpha. Uh, and maybe it's only one third of hedge funds who do that. But we've taken more of a lens, just a cold, hard look at the data because there's just so much uh, mythology and, uh, and you know, social media frenzy around this. We took a cold, hard look at the data and said, if you take, Bitcoin's now a teenager. It's been around yep. for over 12 years. If you look at the data, particularly the last four years, you know, early, early entrants had a great chance to make a lot of money with this. What does the data say? And as a long-term investment, should you hold cryptocurrencies in your portfolio as an institution or as a sophisticated investor, our answer is no. The data speaks volumes against that idea based on everything we see to date and what's going to happen but in the near future. Why, you know, one of the encouraging things for crypto bulls has been um, adoption by institutional investors. And more and more banks are opening trading desks, more and more banks are looking at custody. Um, and it seems like the ratio of retail to institutional continues to be uh, bullish. Do you think that that's going to turn around now? I, th I think it's going to turn around. You know, again, the, the trick here to be a good active investor is to look at the data. And I will say yesterday we were looking at the ETFs and year to date among the entire universe of ETFs, which is a big universe now. Yep. yep. Um, Crypto ETFs are the second biggest losers with 48% drawdowns. The only ETFs that have lost more 
are Russia ETFs. <laughs> so if you go all the way back to even 2019 and you look at the risk-adjusted return of cryptocurrencies, given the drawdown, given the volatility, given all the turbulence that they have, they aren't better than bonds and stocks. If you look at their correlations, which is what institutional investors do, is it giving me diversified return with equities, with real estate, with gold? Definitely it's, not. It's not. No. You know, for the first five, seven years it did, for the last five years, it is giving you risk on levered access to the same risk you're getting elsewhere. So you're not getting uncorrelated returns. Is it a safe haven? You know, gold has 5,000 years of history and mm -hmm. intrinsic uses in industry and jewelry. That does make it a decent long-term inflation hedge. Never a great short-term, but a good long-term inflation hedge. In the only incidence of inflation, and we, boy, we have it in spades now, Bitcoin is moving in the opposite direction to inflation. It's not acting as a safe haven. It's not acting as a hedge. It didn't act as a safe haven in, in COVID. So it's not really playing the digital goal role. It's not really working. But maybe as a that's currency. just now. I mean, if you look at maybe four thousand nine hundred and ninety-three years ago, gold had like a five-year spot of correlation. So it's always easy to say that these are the sort of early pangs of a new asset class, and you know it's going to be volatile and it's going to stabilize. But twelve years is a long time, guys. So there's a lot of data now that's that's showing it's not true. And I think I see two other headwinds coming down the road. One is regulators are getting smart yep. around this and finally catching up. You know, regulation lags by several years. We're seeing it in tech. We're now seeing it with cryptocurrency. They're going to be big regulatory headwinds from China all the way. They can just ban it and they have, you know, the mining of, of cryptocurrency. But regulators around the world are catching up on this and that's going to be a big headwind. And second, I think maybe it's two, three years down the road, maybe it's five. But when you have the digital dollar, the digital euro, the digital sterling, and all those CBDCs. governments are working, CBDCs, why would, I, why would I buy a stable coin that has liquidity risk, that has credit risk with unclear reserves when I can buy the digital dollar? Now, all the infrastructure that cryptocurrencies have built, that is going to be where I think the, the value is. It's in the picks and the shovels, not in the gold. CBDC is central bank digital currency. Okay, showing off now. Big deal. <laughs> all right, so, Matt, we've been calling out some of the resumes of some of our guests today. Yeah. Listen to this guy, Tamer. PhD in economics from Oxford University. That's, they're pretty good. They're pretty good, right? Now he's in a radio station talking Bitcoin. How the mighty have fallen. I mean, Tamer, <laughs> when you look at like a, I guess when I think about it, you know, I spent so long on Wall Street and I figure like if Wall Street's into it, then it's kind of real, you know? And uh, and I just don't see the Jamie Dimons of the world embracing crypto. He I, hates it. He hates it. And I, I, I don't see a crypto trading desk on Goldman Sachs. They might have one. I don't know, but they I They have one. Okay. But in the works. And look, it doesn't matter if Jamie Dimon and Warren Buffett and everybody else over, you know, 85 doesn't like crypto. That's right. not necessarily speaking. Well, I, that, that's my I question. How do you do you need the validation of greater Wall Street to for this we, asset class? You know, as as you know, we, we manage over one point four trillion in assets. Jeez. We don't need their <laughs> validation. But but we do look for certain things in any new asset class. Right. First, okay. is there a stable correlation with other asset classes? B, is there a source of value that has some sort of intrinsic purpose beyond speculation? And speculation could continue. You know, retail investors can, might make money for a while, but is there a true source of value? And third, is there a stable regulatory regime or the regulatory right. headwinds? Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies don't meet any of that. But we are bullish, because I don't want to end on a bearish yep. note. We are bullish around the innovations that accidentally happened 
in the creation of Bitcoin. Okay. And I'm talking the technology with the blockchain, blockchain, and smart, smart contracts, contracts, tokenization of real assets. I told you all that has the, real value. You're preaching to the choir here, Tamor. Uh, Matt has been all over this. Tamor Hyatt, thank you so much for joining us. He's the COO of PGM, uh, joining us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, talking crypto uh, as it continues to evolve as potentially an asset class for some. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. All right, let's talk real estate, residential real estate. Again, Matt's been in the market. I am now out of the market. <laughs> I prefer my position. But let's talk to somebody who does this stuff for a living, Kenneth Leone, uh, research director at CFRA. Ken, has uh, housing in this country, has it peaked? So there's a, an incredible housing shortage. You know, we're talking millions since the housing crisis over 10 years ago. That's not going to go away. And... Housing probably has peaked near term because of the pressure from rising interest rates, mortgage rates above 5%. It's hurting uh, the product categories of entry-level home buyers, also move-up categories. And the only areas on the, the recent National Association of Realtors existing inventory sales that was positive was the 750 to a million dollar category and above a million. So we are seeing moderation. Yes, I think we've seen a peak. So, uh, by the way, Kenneth, we've been giving people's resumes out today. So you were a managing director at Bear Stearns, senior VP at Lehman Brothers. Um, you were uh, the global director of equity research at McGraw-Hill Financial. You know what you're doing. You know what you're talking about. What do you expect from mortgage rates going forward? Because we're hearing about a Fed that could raise at 50 basis point increments, you know, possibly for three or four meetings. Maybe they're going to raise, uh, they're going to raise rates like by 300% by the time they're done here. What are we going to see in terms of mortgage rates? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, and, and most importantly, the, the mortgage market is down about 65% on originations, whether it's purchase or refi. Refi is dead. And uh, the Fed is quantitative tightening. The mortgage-backed securities 
you know, they're going to be peeling off $35 billion in September, half of that starting in June. That's the macro to your reference to Bear Stearns or Lehman. But, you know, generally the markets uh, will stay liquid. And I think for mortgage rates, uh, it's likely that uh, n- not even the Mortgage Bankers Association, which is the bull case for mortgage rates, is going above 5.2% in either 2022 or 2023. Uh, to answer your question, I think we're going to see 55 to 6% on mortgage rates. Ken, you mentioned supply of homes. And kind of what I've heard really over the years is, the housing industry, they're, I mean, the home builders are really good at building those McMansions. There's big profit margins in for the builders there on those types of homes. But what they have not been building is kind of the entry-level home here. Is that changing at all, do you think? It, it, it has changed. But, you know, again, the backdrop, how this market is different than when we had the housing crisis back in 08 and 09, is that um, home builders learn. <clears throat> their balance sheets are strong. They have debt maturities that really becomes more measurable two or three years out on maturities. And uh, they have great liquidity. So they're, they're not speculating. They also change the mix of their land inventory to be about 60 to 70% option, which means they can cancel it for a small fee and the rest is own lot. Totally different picture than the speculative side both from the home builders as well as home buyers that were subprime. FICO scores are very high today, um, and that's why I use the word moderation from the peak for the housing market. All right, Ken, great, great stuff. Uh, We appreciate getting your thoughts. Ken Leone, Research Director at CFRA. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.